Section three of the Pagan Madonna by Harold McGrath. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Don W. Jenkins. Chapter three. Outside the bar where the Wang Pu empties into the Yang Tse lay the thousand-ton yacht Wanderer Two out of New York. She was a sea whippet, and prior to the war her bowsprit had nosed into all the famed harbors of the seven seas. For nearly three years she had been in the auxiliary fleet of the United States Navy. She was still in war paint, owner's choice, but all naval markings had been obliterated. Her deck was flush. The house, pierced by the main companionway, was divided into three sections, a small lounging room, a wireless room, and the captain's cabin over which stood the bridge and a chart house. The single funnel rose between the captain's cabin and the wireless room, and had the rakish tilt of the racer. Wanderer, too, could upon occasion hit up around twenty-one knots for all her fifteen years. There was plenty of deck-room fore and aft. The crew's quarters were up in the forepeak. A passageway divided the cook's galley and the dry stores, then came the dining-room. The main salon, with a fine library, came next. The port side of this salon was cut off into the owner's cabin. The main companionway dropped into the salon, a passage each side giving into the guest cabins. But rarely these days were there any guests on Wanderer too. The rain slashed her deck, drummed on the boat canvas, and blurred the ports. The deck-house shed webby sheets of water, now to port, now to starboard. The ladder was down, and a reflector over the platform advertised the fact that either the owner had gone into Shanghai, or was expecting a visitor. All about were rocking lights, yellow and green and red, from warships, tramps, passenger ships, freighters, barges, junks. The water was streaked with shaking lances of color. In the salon, under a reading-lamp, sat a man whose iron-gray hair was patched with cowlicks. Combs and brushes produced no results, so the owner had it clipped to a short pompadour. It was the skull of a fighting man, for all that frontally it was marked by high intellectuality. This sort of head generally gives the possessor yachts, like Wanderer too, tremendous bank accounts the type that will always possess these things, despite the howl of the proletariat. The face was sunburned. There was some loose flesh under the jaws. The nose was thick and pudgy, wide in the nostrils, like a lion's. The predatory are not invariably hawk-nosed. The eyes were blue, in repose a warm blue, and there were feathery wrinkles at the corners which suggested that the toll-taker could laugh occasionally. The lips were straight and thin, the chin square, stubborn rather than relentless, a lonely man who was rarely lonesome. His body was big. One has to be keen physically as well as mentally to make a real success of anything. His score might have tallied sixty. He was at the peak of life, but hanging there, you might say. Tomorrow, Anthony Clay might begin the quick downward journey. He had made his money in mines, rails, ships, and now he was spending it prodigally. Prodigally, yes, but with caution and foresight. There was always a ready market for what he bought. If he paid a hundred thousand for a Rembrandt, rest assured he knew where he could dispose of it for the same amount. Clay was a collector by instinct. With him it was no fad. It was a passion, sometimes absurd. 
this artistic love of rare and beautiful creations was innate not acquired dealers had long since learned their lesson and no more sought to impose upon him he was not always scrupulous in the dollar war he had been sternly honest harshly just in the pursuit of objects of art he argued with his conscience that he was not injuring the future of widows and orphans when he bought some purloined masterpiece without being in the least aware of it he was now the victim not the master of the passion he would have purchased raphael's adoration of the magi had some rogue been able to steal it from the vatican hanging from the ceiling and almost touching the floor forward between the entrance to the dining salon and the owner's cabin was a rug eight and a half by six it was the first object that struck your eye as you came down the companionway it was an animal rug a museum piece rubies and sapphires and emeralds and topaz melted into wool it was under glass to fend off the sea damp fit to hang beside the ardabil carpet you never saw the rug except in his salon clay dared not hang it in his gallery at home in new york for the particular reason that the british government urged by the viceroy of india had been hunting high and low for the rug since nineteen eleven when it had been the rightful property of a certain influential maharaja whose ay ay had reverberated from hind to albion over the loss thus it will not be difficult to understand why clay was lonely rather than lonesome queer lot to be a true collector is to be as the opium-eater you keep getting in deeper and deeper careless that the way back closes after a while you cannot feel any kick in the stuff you find in the open marts so you step outside the pale where they sell the unadulterated that's the true dyed-in-the-wool collector he no longer acquires a van dyke merely to show to his friends that he possesses it for his own delectation is enough he becomes brother to gaspard miser and like gaspard he cannot be fooled by spurious gold over the top of the rug was a curtain of waxed sailcloth that could be dropped by the pull of a cord and it was generally dropped whenever clay made port it was vaguely known that clay possessed the maharaja's treasure millionaire collectors agents and famous salesroom auctioneers had heard indirectly but they kept the information to themselves not from any kindly spirit however never a one of them but hoped some day he might lay hands upon the rug and dispose of it to some other madman a rug valued at seventy thousand dollars was worth a high adventure clay however with cynical humor courted the danger there is a race of hardy daredevils super thieves of which the world hears little and knows little these adventures have actually robbed the louvre the vatican the pity gallery the palaces of kings and sultans it was not so long ago that la gioconda mona lisa was stolen from the louvre clay had come from new york thousands of miles for the express purpose of meeting one of these amazing rogues a rogue who had he found a rich wallet on the pavements would have moved heaven and earth to find the owner but who would have stolen the pope's throne had it been left about carelessly it is rather difficult to analyze the moral status of such a man or that of the man ready to deal with him clay lowered his book and assumed a listening attitude above the patter of the rain he heard the putt-putt of a motor launch he laid the book on the table and reached for a black cigar which he lit and began to puff quickly louder grew the panting of the motor it stopped abruptly clay heard a call or two then the creaking of the ladder two minutes later a man limped into the salon 
He tossed his sou'wester to the floor, and followed it with the smelly oilskin. "'Hello, Clay. Devil of a night.' "'Have a peg?' asked Clay. "'Never touch the stuff.' "'That's so. I had forgotten.' Clay never looked upon this man's face without recalling del Sarto's John the Baptist, supposing John had reached forty by the way of reckless passions. The extraordinary beauty was still there, but as though behind a blurred pane of glass. "'Well?' said Clay, trying to keep the eagerness out of his voice. "'There's the devil to pay, all in a half-hour.' "'You haven't got it?' Clay blazed out. "'Morrissey, one of the squarest chaps in the world, ran amuck the last minute, tried to double-cross me, and in the rough-and-tumble that followed he was more or less banged up. We hurried him to a hospital where he lies unconscious.' but the beads either he dropped them in the gutter or they repose on the floor of a chinese shop in woosung road i'll be there bright and early never you fear don't know what got into morrissey of course i'll look him up in the morning thousands of miles to hear a yarn like this clay we've done business for nearly twenty years you can't point out an instance where i ever broke my word i know grumbled clay but i've gone to all this trouble getting a crew and all that and now you tell me you've let the beads slip through your fingers. Shah, you'd have put the yacht into commission if you'd never heard from me. You were crazy to get to sea again. Any trouble picking up the crew? No, but only four of the old crew, Captain Newton, of course, and Chief Engineer Svenson, Donaldson, and Morley. Still, it's the best crew I ever had. Young fellows off warships and transports, looking for comfortable berths and a little adventure that won't entail hunting periscopes. Plenty of coal? Trust me for that. Four hundred tons in Manila, and I shan't need more than a bucketful. Who drew the plans for this yacht? asked Cunningham, in a roving glance. I did. Hm. Why didn't you leave the job to someone who knew how? It's a series of labyrinths on this deck. I wanted a big main salon, even if I had to sacrifice some of the rest of the space. Besides, it keeps the crew out of sight. And I should say out of touch, too. I'm quite satisfied, replied Clay, grumpily. Clay, I'm through. Cunningham spread his hands. What are you through with? Through with this game. I'm going in for a little sport. This string of beads was the wind-up. But don't worry, they'll be on board here tomorrow. You brought the gold? Yes. The visitor paused in front of the rug. He sighed audibly. Scheherazade's twinkling little feet. Lord, but that rug is a wonder. Clay, I've been offered eighty thousand for it. What's that? Clay barked, half out of his chair. Eighty thousand by Eisenfeld. I don't know what crazy fool he's dealing for, but he offers me eighty thousand. Clay got up and pressed a wall button. Presently a man stepped into the salon from the starboard passage. He was lank and lean, wind-bitten face, and a hard blue eye. "'Dodge,' announced Clay, smiling. "'This is Mr. Cunningham. I want you to remember him.' Dodge agreed with a curt nod. "'If ever you see him in this cabin when I'm absent, you know what to do.' "'Yes, sir,' replied Dodge, with a wintry smile. Cunningham laughed. "'So you carry a Texas gunman round with you now. After all, why not? You never can tell. But don't worry, Clay, if—' ever i make up my mind to accept eisenfeld's offer i'll lift the yacht first clay laughed amusedly how would you go about to steal a yacht like this that's telling now i've got to get back to town 
My advice for you is to come in tomorrow and put up at the Aster, where I can get in touch with you easily. Agreed. That's all, Dodge. The Texan departed, and Cunningham burst into laughter again. You're an interesting man, Clay. On my word, you do need a guardian, gallivanting around the world with all these treasures. Queer what things we do when we try to forget. Is there any desperate plunge we wouldn't take if we thought we could leave the old man of the sea behind? You think you're forgetting when you fly across half the world for a string of glass beads. I think I'm forgetting when I risk my neck getting hold of some half-forgotten Rembrandt. But there it is, always at our shoulder when we turn, one of the richest men in the world. Doesn't that tingle you when you hear people whisper it as you pass? Just as I tingle when some woman gasps, what a beautiful face. We both have our withered leg, only yours is invisible. The mockery on the face and the irony on the tongue of the man disturbed Clay. Supposing the rogue had his eye on that rug, to what lengths might he not go to possess it? and he had the infernal ingenuity of his master Beelzebub, or was he just trying Anthony Clay's nerves to see whether they were sound or raw? "'But the beads,' he said. "'I'm sorry. Simply Morrissey ran amuck. I'm willing to pay half as much again.' "'You leave that to me, at the original price. No hold-up. Prices fixed, as the French say. Those beads will be on board here to-morrow. But why the devil do you carry that rug abroad?' to look at mad as a hatter cunningham picked up his oilskin and sou'wester hang it clay i've a notion to have a try at that rug just for the sport of it if you want to bump into dodge replied the millionaire dryly try it oh it will be the whole thing the yacht when i start action devil take the weather how the deuce did the beads happen to turn up here in shanghai morrissey brought them east from naples that's why his work to-night puzzles me all those weeks to play the crook in, and then to make a play for it when he knew he could not put it over. Brainstorm, and when he comes to he'll probably be sorry. Well, keep your eye on the yacht. Cunningham shouldered into his oilskin. Tomorrow at the Astor, between three and five. By George, what a ripping idea, to steal the yacht. I'm mad as a hatter, too. Good night, Clay. And laughing, Cunningham went twisting up the companionway into the rain and the dark. Clay stood perfectly still until the laughter became an echo, and the echo a memory. End of chapter 3 Read by Don W. Jenkins Rancho San Diego, California Shaggybark.blogspot.com